Do you know of any studies that are on the horizon or that have come out? Because I think, I don't know if you saw the more recent, I think in the last maybe couple of months, there was another high volume study. I guess it was kind of like the third high volume study that seemed to confirm that these very high volumes are better. Um, But it seems that all of these studies, as far as I'm aware, have incorporated really short rest periods. And I think that's kind of been the big caveat is that they have short rest periods and that, which seems counterintuitive to me in the sense that why, if if you're going to get the same results, why are you trying to cram in more sets into (coughs) the amount of time and just like resting less? If you can get, if you can rest longer and do less sets, and get similar results, the, that just seems to make more sense to me. The paper you're referring to, the, the lead researcher was Brigado, and mm. um, they claim, they basically seem to verify that some ungodly number of sets, I think it was another 45 sets per week, was superior. And the, I think the leg was like 16.32, it's maybe 48, I think it was 16 three times a week. They did squat and leg press, eight by 10 rep max, on yeah. a 60 second rest interval. Oof. Prove, <laughs> prove it. Now, when you look at it and read the methods, they are defining failure as form failure. Now on the squats, depending your form, your form may break long before you hit muscular failure. I mean, honestly, if you're a decently trained lifter, you should be able to get there. But regardless, what this means is that they're 10 rep max, is probably three to four reps short of muscular failure. Now, they did this on the leg press. Mm-hmm. I don't know where form failure on the leg press is supposed to happen. It should be at muscular. Like, I'm not sure what they're going to define. Maybe not, maybe cutting depth. I don't know. Yeah. But what what it what seems to be the case, Chris Beardsley wrote a little wrote a piece on this, and I sort of put this summary together in my group. Right. If you look at the three high volume studies, right, which are the original Brad's paper, uh, the uh, Juan Han, H. Cody Han at all, when the yep. Mike Isretel was involved with, and the new one, if you look at the training, it's extremely inefficient. Brad supposedly did five by eight to 12 rep max in the squat, again, form failure on 90 seconds, followed by leg press, followed by leg extension. I want to see the videos. I wrote a, I did a little weird little <laughs> article, right? I want to see the videos of these workouts because if you come to Austin, I will take you through two sets of squats to failure and you will not get off the floor. And I did. I issued a challenge last year. I said, someone send me a video of them doing this. Anybody, prove me wrong. People want me to shut up. I said, if you want to shut up, prove me wrong. Somehow nobody proved me wrong because this is an impossible workout. There is another study. Anyway, so you look at them, right? So the, the, the paper Mike Isertel was involved with, they did sets of 10 with four, on a 14 RM. So it's four reps in reserve, four reps away from failure. Because the way they circuited that there was a 10-minute rest interval between every set. So what they did was warm up sets for about an hour. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I could I could do that till I got bored. Right. By the time they were doing 32 sets a week, like, OK, 12 sets of 10 with four reps are in reserve with a 10 minute rest interval. Number one, how ungodly boring. But number two, <laughs> those, sets are, those sets are useless. Those are a bunch of just a series of warm up sets as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. If you look at Brad paper again, this is an extremely inefficient method of training. And I find it really weird. Brad's lab did a paper showing that anything less than two minutes was inferior. Why does he keep doing these 60 to 90 second rest interval studies? And I actually asked him when this paper first came out, he said, well, it's to keep the workout shorter for being too long. Well, right there, you've identified the big problem with this nonsense. The workouts become intractable. The Brigado paper did squat followed by leg press. 8 by 10, the, the high volume group did 8 by 10 RM on 60 seconds. Sure. Sure. I believe you. Did they reduce weight each time? Or? Well, they had to. I bet they were using the bar by the last set. That's yeah. why I want to see the video. There's another group, and I don't think the study has come out yet, who actually put a video up on Instagram of one of their training sessions. Now, they did this ugly, like, I was really, 
the, the first thing they they were looking to some to one degree about differences in muscular endurance women and men like reps to failure and one woman did like he reps to failure in a partial squat to a box 80 yeah. but then they put a guy in the leg press and took him to muscular failure true muscular failure yeah. he crawled out of the machine and collapsed that's a set to failure. You're not getting off the floor in 90 seconds, much less doing five of those, unless you're stopping so short of failure or having to reduce the weight by, and again, you can prove this to yourself. Anyone going to the gym, get on a hammer machine, do a set to true muscular failure where you're pressing as hard as possible till the weight won't move. Wait 60 seconds, see how many reps you get. If you get half as many, I'll be stunned or you can cut the weight by half. So you have these three studies supporting these enormous volumes. Then you've got about six showing that moderate volumes are better. Then you got the Barbalo study showing that the lowest volumes were better, right? Mm -hmm. They found that basically five sets to true limits was as good at 10 sets was as good. And then at 15 and 20, they got worse results. But this is all done in one workout because no human being can do 20 sets to true failure even with a long rest interval and have it be, that's just an, an, it's an impossible, it's an excessive workout. And I think that's what sort of summarizes this. And I wrote about this last year and then Chris Beardsley did a piece recently trying to sort of synthesize this, right? So the current model, we've got this effective rep theory of training, right? Is that basically it's the repetitions done under maximal activation uh, are the ones that stimulate growth, right? Which is usually the last, whatever three to four to failure if you're working the limits depending on how what intensity you start at so if you do a heavy set of eight to true failure you're going to get like four effective reps per set maybe even more now if you do a set to form failure that is three reps from true muscular failure you want effective rep in the israel study the cody Hahn paper Again, sets of 10 with a 14 RM, maybe one effective rep, maybe two. Let's, I'll be generous. Well, let's add that up. If you do 10 warm up sets, essentially, with two effective reps, you've gotten 20 effective reps that workout. And if you do five sets of five to failure, you've gotten 25. The end, yeah. you can either do five real sets or 10 piss ass sets. You can do eight medium heavy sets, maybe one or two reps short of failure, or you can do 16 worthless sets because you're on a freaking 60 second rest interval and there's no possible way you're anywhere close to failure. Because that, And that was basically what Chris sort of concluded. Same thing I wrote last year was that like, yeah, basically they're using volume to make up for set effectiveness. Right. And I, I do understand your criticisms of it for sure, especially I think if we just look at these studies, um, obviously, when the Brad Schoenfeld came out, that was, you know, that generated a ton of conversation. And then oh, yeah. you know, to since then, um, I guess my question would be not really plain devil's advocate, but more just to hear the other side. I think when you look at these studies and you say, wow, 20, 30 plus sets to failure with 60 seconds rest, it seems kind of silly. And I, I don't know really anybody who's doing that. Um, even when James Kiefer did the, uh, when he did his own experiment, he ended up mm -hmm. just doing it for upper body and he adjusted things down a little bit because of his age. So ultimately it wasn't really what the, the study was showing. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think he might've extended his rest periods, but I'm, I'm not sure about that. But regardless, it wasn't exactly what the study said. Sure. My question to you would be. You know, I think the people who really <coughs> do advocate higher volumes, let's say like a, a Mike Isertel and some others. The argument I think would be, okay, maybe let's say eight to 10 all out sets would be probably more in line with what, what you would recommend versus mm -hmm. maybe for him, it's again, obviously there's a huge range and he, he scales up, let's say on average, 16 to 24 sets, keeping some reps, uh, reps in reserve. Do you think mm -hmm. that that is as effective, less effective, or do you think it's just unnecessary you know, to even go into all of that, that it's just kind of wasting time to do so much. Well, I, I think I come from that perspective. It's like, well, you can do 15 sets to what I, what I consider just fooling around, or you could just do six to eight hard sets and get the hell out of the gym. Right. And admit and make no mistake. I come, you know, when I, in my twenties, I was big 
hard gainer into the, I've always come from more of the intensity effectiveness end. Mm. I mean, clearly, and again, this was kind of Chris Beardsley's synthesis and mine as well, that like, okay, maybe if we look at it as, because again, in science, you use the, you have to, you have to build a model around the bulk of the data. And when you find studies that are contrary to one another, you have to, if you group them, you frequently see patterns showing up. Right, as sort of a side example, because I love to hear my own voice. For 50 years, there has been a debate about metabolic adaptation. Does it occur mm -hmm. on, during a diet? About half studies say yes, about half studies say no. And when you read reviews, it's hilarious because depending on the bias of the author, they'll pick whichever ones agree with them. Well, I'm interested in the whole body, right? How do we explain the, the, contra the seeming contradiction? And what happens is that when you collect all of the studies that say it happens and all the studies that don't, the big difference is initial body fat percentage, pretty much. Mm. When you're above a certain body fat percentage, I mean, and I'm talking 40 to 50%, I'm talking at the extremes, you don't see much. And get into, I could get a bunch of physiology with leptin and leptin thresholds, a bunch of stuff nobody cares about. And once you get below a certain point, it starts. Well, boom, mm -hmm. there's your answer right there, right? When you're above a certain body fat, the, the body, there is no reason for it to metabolically adapt for the most part because you've got so much fat stored, it doesn't care to put it in a very anthropomorphic sense. Mm -hmm. Then when you get leaner, it is an indefensible argument because every study ever shows that. So again, so we group the volume studies. We go, here's the three that show super high volumes are superior sometimes, depending on if you actually adhere to statistics or not, but I don't want to rant, rave about that. Here are the six that don't. And you look at the three that didn't, and it is what I consider an inefficient method of training. You were spending three times as long in the gym either because you're stopping way short of failure or you're using such a short wrist. And again, I want to see it. I want to see the workout because I don't believe it for it. I don't even care. Either you're stopping at form failure on back squats. I still don't think anybody's getting back into the bar in 60 seconds. Show me. Video the workout. Prove me wrong. I'll be happy to be proven wrong. Mm -hmm. I don't believe. I don't believe it. So those are the three that say super high volumes. Then you've got the ones, the six that say moderate is pretty much better. And um, boom, that's how you explain it. If you're doing, and invariably the ones that say that lower is better, used a much higher quality of training. If you're closer to failure, these two to three minute long rest intervals. Another one just came out and it compared 12, 18, and 24 for lower body. And I should know the name of the author and I don't right now. I know I looked it up. Um, but anyway, they again, they, they use kind of a, a weird periodization scheme, but they use longer rest intervals. And they actually found that from a growth standpoint, 12 was as good as anything else. 18 was better for strength, probably from a practice perspective. Mm. Um, so there's another one that adds to the body. that, and, and I like it not because it agrees with me. It used a much more realistic spread of volumes, right? I read these papers, and they always set it by sets per exercise. So it's like, okay, we compared eight... 24 and 48. Okay, <laughs> right, look. Right. <laughs> right? It, Brad's was 9, 27, and 45. Right. Right? So even if one, like 27 is, but okay, what happens in between those two? That is a staggering, it's a triple the range. Sure. Stop setting it as sets per exercise. Set it as sets per muscle group. So this one did 12, 18, 24 by manipulating whatever, whatever. And basically 12 was just as good as any of the higher. So yeah, okay. So the argument then becomes, well, because there's an individual in my group who takes my comment that this is piss-ass training rather personally. And uh, I'm like, okay, fine. Not everyone is cut out for intensity. It burns some people out, no doubt about it. Uh, on certain movements, I certainly wouldn't recommend most go to failure. I've taken full squats to failure. I can guarantee you that the number of people I've ever seen squat to true muscular failure, I can probably count on one hand. I've seen people have stuff go awry, but true, true muscular failure in the squat means you start to descend, you get stuck halfway up, and either need a spot or you got to dump the bar. Mm -hmm. Have you ever done it on purpose? No. Most people have not. I have repeatedly back in back when I was younger. 
that's the other thing I, I the big issue that I bring up a lot. Well, okay, let me get back to your original question. Does it matter? Clearly not in the big picture, right? The growth is about the same, whether you train what I consider efficiently right. or what I consider inefficiently. And James Krieger, I guess, did a recent analysis where he, I mean, he basically drew that conclusion. So he said, okay, if you're going heavy, there's probably a per workout limit to the number of productive sets. And again, we can look at this from sort of that effective rep thing is again, effective reps. The idea is that it's the repetitions done under full muscular activation and you get back closer to failure with very heavy weights. The idea would be that once you've stimulated the muscle to a certain point, you can't stimulate more. And there's other systems that work like that. This has actually been shown for bone loading. Once you give it like 20 or so, like, full stimuli it becomes resistant to further you can you can do 50 or 100 it doesn't do any more mm. i suspect it will be true for muscle i want someone to look at it specifically i want to see the numbers find a way to just be like all right we did you know the only study i've ever seen compared one set to three sets and three sets generated was a better stimulus well let's take this further one set to failure three sets to failure six nine twelve where does the stimulus stop increasing and James's basic conclusion was eight was the sweet spot if you're within a rep or two of failure. Anything above 10 is excessive, which is interesting because then that contradicts the Brad's paper that Brett was or that James was on that he defended for a year and a half because I'm mean. Because you can't have it both ways. You can't say it's 10 sets per workout, but 15 is superior. Sorry, I'm not a mathematician. Somebody checked that. But from what I can tell, if 10's the maximum, 15 is above 10, I think. He then concluded that below six was ineffective, which is contradicted completely by the Barbalo research, where five was just as effective as 10, neither here nor there. But again, these are true limit sets. So basically, he's like, all right, you know, six, maybe let's call it eight to 10 sets, heavy sets, twice a week. Huh. It's about 16 to 20. It's funny. That's what I wrote what, almost two years ago, 10 to 20 sets per week. Everybody's come back to that. Here's an interesting piece of trivia. Mike Isertel wrote a paper for, I want to say, the Strength and Conditioning Journal, uh, which I will eventually look at. And as a throwaway sentence, he said, we might realistically set a set count between 10 to 20 sets per week and start at 10 and build to 20 and go back. Huh, what happened to a billion sets per week, Mike? <laughs> Why do y'all all agree with me now? Because y'all do, but you don't have the guts to say I was right all along. Anyway, James then concluded, because he's got he's to gotta make sure and keep this in that for short periods, higher volumes, 15, 34, whatever, might be useful. But again, that, is, that makes no sense. If eight sets, heavy sets is the maximum, the only way 15 sets can potentially be useful is if it's inefficient training. But he even said that there doesn't seem to be any benefit, like in terms of the results, that there is no difference in the end result growth-wise between eight heavy sets roughly or the 15, as I like to call them, piss-ass sets. So you can't have it both, you can't, and again, I may be misrepresenting the analysis if I am, I'm sorry about that, because uh, I read too much and I forget it all, but like, it's one or the other, right? And again, Chris Beardsley, that's the conclusion he sort of drew. It's like, end of the day, they generate the same results. But this explains the aggregate, the three, the high-volume stuff. You're just not training efficiently. To get the same number of effective reps, when you're stopping four reps short of failure, you got to do two to three times as much volume. If I some do people question, wanted, like, yeah. I mean, just because I don't think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not sure of any, do we have any high volume studies or really any studies that have adequate rest periods let's say two to five minutes showing anything above 20 sets is beneficial is there anything out there yep. showing that um, nope. just because i it's wonder kind of like with what you said you know I, like i've been training for 15 years i know nothing no <laughs> research i find is going to do anything for me at this point um sure. it's more just an intellectual endeavor at this point i find it interesting and i, I do coach others and so for me if i can get somebody to their goal let's say in five years versus seven years that's great but ultimately sure. um 
you know, I've, I've talked to a few people about this, that I think if you intelligently bulk up, gain weight, lean bulk, whatever you want to call it, yeah, you know, for an extended period of time, cut down, do that a few times over the years, and you do that intelligently, you're going to have like 90 to 95% of your size. And there are huge yes. individuals from the low volume camp, huge individuals yeah. from the high volume camp. I'd love to believe, as I think most of us would, that <laughs> we're going to find something. Um, but some of these studies, it's just, I mean, you know, um, monthly application of strength sport, the monthly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and, yeah, and I, yeah. and I, I, I like it, you know, I, I think it's interesting, but so many of the conclusions are, it didn't matter that much or a eh, small effect, you know, we'll see what further yes. research shows. And that's, that's nothing to, you know, that's not a negative against mass that like they're just reporting on what the studies show. Sure. But I think in this space, there's just not that much that's like, wow, this was amazing. This is going to change everything. You know, it's just not um, as much as we might want to find something like that. Yeah, I mean, you know, and that's sort of always been a lot of it is, and make no mistake, I've contributed to this. We mm. want to be obsessive psychos and try to get optimal results. And at the end of the day, you, get a, you end up the same spot no matter what path you take, right? Like, and, and this is so, so I just as a, a preview for something that one study I am aware of, uh, apparently, I believe Renaissance Periodization, which is the company Mike is involved with, is funding a study from Brad's lab to examine, do we need to add weight to the bar to grow? I saw that. That's and I, gonna be and I love, think he also wrote a paper with Grigic about set counting sets about mm. how do we count sets during studies, which was kind of is funny because he kind of went through and he's like, well, there's really limited research. Well, limited research we have says that you shouldn't count one to one, which was part of my contention all along. However, all the other studies have done it one to one, so we might as well use that anyway, even though we know that it's wrong, which I think you is mean, not. You mean with, when you say that, just to clarify for people listening, you mean for smaller muscle groups that are- Sure. So, so one of the one of the big issues I have with a lot of these studies, right, is they're like, okay, we're going to do high volume of compound exercises. We did chest press and incline press, and we measured the triceps. Mm -hmm. Well, we did sixteen sets of chest. So, but we only met. We didn't measure the pecs or the delts. We measured the triceps. Well, sixteen sets gave or whatever it was. Okay, who in their right mind thinks that sixteen sets for chest is the equivalent of sixteen sets for triceps? No coach in the world. Now, we, now, can I say exactly what it is? No. If you read my articles, I assumed, and I've always counted them like this, it's about half. Right. Right? Now, it depends. It depends on your individual levers. It depends on a whole bunch of different stuff. And if you actually go back and read Eric Helms's analysis of Brad's paper, he says the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. Probably about 0.5 to 1. So if you did 16 heavy sets for chest, I would count that as eight sets for triceps. And mm -hmm. when you reparse all the studies and all the volume studies, all of a sudden the numbers get a whole lot more realistic. Now, what I don't understand is I have seen papers that do ultrasound on the pecs. A study on both women and men, they did the glutes, they did the pec, I think they did the pecs, they did the bisentrot delts. I don't understand why all these studies are using like compound chest and back and measuring biceps and clearly methodologically you can measure these other muscles that would tell us a hell of a lot more mm -hmm. sure. about what it is if you're doing 16 sets of compound chest i want to know how your chest responded right and when you go back and remath these studies out and, and i did this in a series i did called uh, training volume and hypertrophy towards the very end the the numbers come all they they come way more in line because mm -hmm. several of the early studies did use isolation work like Ostrowski did one of the other ones did he used a kind of a weird split routine the GBT studies had an arm day and when you sort of start to math them out and you look at these high volume studies and suddenly when sixteen compound chest sets becomes you know half that many <laughs> for the triceps all of a sudden the volumes come way closer in line per week. And do we need more data on this? Absolutely. But the couple of studies that have been done, one, they looked at recovery and they were like, we did pull downs or bicep curls. Biceps took twice as long to recover from bicep curls. Well, yeah, of course it did. <laughs> right. And there's another one that looked at growth in pull downs versus and bicep curls. Biceps grew more from bicep curls, right? You can't count. But anyway, the point of this being that, so Brad did that paper, right? Because my premise 
my contention for the last decade and a half based on the data is that over time, I'm not saying every workout or every week, over time, if you're not adding weight to the bar, you're not growing. And you can prove this to yourself all day, every day. Go into any gym, the biggest naturals are very strong. Now, I'm not saying they're strongest in absolute terms. They're not strong in powerlifter terms. They got much stronger from where they started. Mm -hmm, sure. Look at it. Watch any trainee go pick a random guy who's farting around for 20 sets in the gym. Note his poundages. Come back in a year. Are they the same? So is he. It's that simple. Yeah. Right. I've you, definitely you found will that. Not find well. a weak, you will not find a big natural who's weak. You will not find a small natural who's strong. But then again, you get some weird lever issues. But by and large, if you're not getting stronger over time, you're not getting bigger over within a moderate rep range. Again, people like to make all these just asinine inferences. Well, what, why isn't the biggest bencher in powerlifting the biggest guy? Well, actually, usually they are number one, but number two, I'm not talking about one rep max strength. You know, mm -hmm. Dante Trudell put it yeah, the best. Yeah, came to mind. Growth is stimulated by increasing your strength in a moderate repetition range. That summarizes 90% of what you need to know. But my point being, so Brad's not going to do this paper, is adding weight to the bar necessary for growth. I can already tell you what it's going to be and what it's going to conclude. It's going to be about eight weeks long. And I don't know what he's going to compare that to, probably adding volume. I don't know. It's about eight weeks long. It's going to be unblinded ultrasound because that's what he always does. And he does the measurements, but he can be biased because he said so. Ha, 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 ha. It will, did I lose you? Oh, no, it will conclude that, no, you don't have to add weight to the bar. And everyone will go, Lyle's wrong. Well, I didn't say you had to add weight every week. I've never said that. Over eight weeks, right? When you get advanced, a weight you're using now is going to remain a stimulus for a pretty extended period of time, right? Beginners, what is the old rip -a toe thing? Beginners add weight every week, intermediates mm. add, or every day, intermediates add weight every two or three weeks, advanced add weights every month, right? The same weight you're using now will very probably be a stimulus for at least a month if you're pretty advanced, if you're intermediate to advanced. So yeah, over eight weeks, you may not have to add weight. Again, tell me what happens over a year. You can prove it to yourself. The point of it being is that I like to think that I have so much of an influence that Brad wrote that count that counting paper and is designing this new paper just to prove me wrong. I genuinely liked I am that just <laughs> enough of an an egotist to believe that he's doing that because he because he's mad at me. I, I hope so. so. I really do. I don't know. I mean, I may be giving myself too much credit, but. Um, I was definitely anyway. influenced by Dante as well early on. And I remember even back sure. probably late high school, early college, and my arms hadn't grown in like a year. And I remember saying, like I wrote down in like a little log I had, and I was like, well, no surprise, you're not any stronger, <laughs> so you're not any bigger. And that's yeah, definitely, yes. and, and I've always been, and I think you said the same thing about yourself, I've always been proportionally stronger than I am big. Um, you know, I could yes. usually outlift people who looked about my size. But still, yep. relative to me, I had to get stronger for sure to get bigger. Um, that's kind of, I, I think, fairly universal. I think, yes, you can do these short-term things, which is, I, I guess, Absolutely. I'll in with that study. But yeah, every time I would do an arm specialization phase, I'd crank up the arm volume like crazy. I'd gain a quarter inch of my arm. But did that have any net result on my arms over my 15 years of lifting? I really doubt it. Um, and I saw that paper that they're planning on doing i saw the title of it i'm not uh, i would guess in part they're trying to be a little inflammatory with it um obviously if you took somebody who has like a 135 for five max on a bench let's say sure they don't need to add weight and they could get into 10 reps and they will see growth you know however long that takes um i think of course though any of them would agree over time you obviously need to add weight because nobody's going to get to their maximum size benching 135 pounds for 80 reps. I'm not sure. I'm not sure they actually do agree with that. Um, Cause certainly that, I, I mean, maybe, maybe they are and I'm not reading it, but hang on. <laughs> this is the paper that I was thinking about. Just came out. Uh, it's AUBA at all. D'Souza was on it. Uh, pro progressive resistance training volume effects on muscle thickness, mass and strength adaptations and resistance trained individuals. 
Journal of Strength Conditioning Research, February 13th, 2020. So this is like literally just came out. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm trying to pull up the full paper, but eight-week resistance training program consisting of two weekly sessions, uh, blah, blah, blah. They did um, either 12 sets, 18 sets, or 24 sets a week. And this is for the lower body only. So fairly reasonable spread um, as far as the volume went. Uh, measuring in all the standard stuff. And I'm pretty sure it was, hang on. I just, I just had it. Cause I looked it up. Give me one second. Sure. Um, <clears throat> Cause Sci-Hub is not working for me. Um, so among other things, the same two researchers performed all of the pre-training and post-training measurements and were blinded to the experimental groups. It's amazing. It can be done. Um, the workout, they used a heavy light. Uh, day one, six to eight rep max. Day two, 12 to 15 rep max with two to three minute rest intervals. So it was quality work. Um, they said that their next study, which as far as more was almost complete, is testing directly what happens if you increase volume from, oh, this was another thing. And this is an issue that is kind of complex, but needs to be addressed. Frequently in these studies, they're starting to mention, okay, this was the habitual training volume of where the person is coming from, right? Because there's always the question, right? If you've been on low volume and suddenly you put in the high volume group, is it the volume per se or is it the change? Mm-hmm. Right. This is this is a big area of complication um, because you're you can't ever be quite sure. Or if you were doing a bunch of sets and you could put it in lower volume, maybe you grew because you were overtrained. Right. Like there's all these. Well, one thing this particular paper specifically stated that it did was once they got the previous training volumes, they distributed them evenly into each group mm-hmm. to try to eliminate that as a variable. Does it eliminate it completely? Absolutely not. However, they at least were trying. And apparently, uh, Lucas Defer, who's in my group, um, said that, yeah, their next study is going to see what happens when you increase, when you change volume from habitual volume. And this will be a really interesting data set. Because, right, what have people talked about for years and years and years is that, what is the trite statement? The best training program is the one you're not on, which is just right. <laughs> uh, so, it's so dumb. But, but I, I, you know, and it's like, ah, shock the system and alternate between volume and intensity and things of that nature. And yeah, that's fine. That's legitimate. And, you know, and to go back to your earlier question, the lighter training with more sets. Well, some people's joints get beaten up with constant heavy training. Mm-hmm. Make no mistake, right? Not everyone is built for it mentally, psychologically, or otherwise. Like, I think it can be taught. But not everybody has it in them to build up that kind of intensity. For them, yeah, you can make up for it with volume to a degree. It still needs to be challenging, right? And that's still the thing. I watch people in my gym piss around for two hours day in, day out, mm-hmm. right? They're never working hard at all. You know, and like, yeah, fine if you're doing, <laughs> you know, 15 sets and you're within four reps, like whatever, that's fine. Um uh, what, uh, so, so yeah, so that's the most recent study. And again, they did quality work. They blinded the research. I mean, sorry, quality training. They did a heavy light, very typical. They did, re, you know, they compared a reasonable spread of volumes. They gave sufficient rest intervals to go heavy. And somehow under those conditions, higher volumes weren't superior. And, and it's funny. And I, I even made it really one of my typical snarky comments that I think, you know, I, I think if, again, if you put the data side by side, on top of the other issues, you got the three volume studies that is very low quality training, you got all the, the lower volume studies, which are very high quality training. And suddenly you see the distinction that the differences break out. But I bet if you were to put the studies that um, use long rest intervals, but <clears throat> blinded the researchers to the outcomes, I bet suddenly the ones that are blinded would start to find different results than the ones that weren't blinded. Because mm. when you don't blind research, it increases the risk of bias. And I'm saying that blinding eliminates it, but somehow when you're the head researcher designing the study and maybe have a preconceived belief about what the results are going to be and you do the measurements unblinded, maybe just maybe you see some, especially because ultrasound, there's a subjective element, right? It's not like, it's not like DEXA, 
It's not like MRI. People knew what ultrasound really looks like. Basically, it's one of those like vague x-ray pictures and you kind of mm-hmm. go, boom, that's the difference in size. Yeah, okay. Uh, but yeah, suddenly it's like when the lab's blind and gives sufficient rest intervals, somehow they seem to be getting systematically different results than the studies that are unblinded. Because uh, from memory, that Brigado study, the 8 by 10 RM on 60 seconds, Mm-hmm. They forgot the blinds too. It's interesting. Hmm. And it's weird because it's so easy to do. It's free. I don't know, like it should just be a fundamental aspect of um of research and of science. And yet somehow. Then again, years ago, my mentor, a materials engineer, he studied rocks. Rocks are easy to study, comparatively speaking. Sound like the most <laughs> god boring thing I've ever heard. He told me he's like exercise science is a joke. You've got tiny samples, short periods uncontrollable humans and a tenfold biological response and yeah 20 years later i'm like he might have had a point um i mean exercise science is still better than social psychology but you know yeah. which you want to talk to <laughs> you you start getting further and further down like yeah. it's in the middle but there are a lot of issues because and and sort of as just a quick random tangent i expect beyond everything else Uh, A lot of the hypertrophy research is truly about to get thrown into disarray by a observation that um, several recent papers have made, none of which I remember the names of. What they're fine, because like, what are we doing? We are comparing one individual to another in these different volumes. And if you look at the variable, the variance in response, it's enormous. And this is always part of the problem, because what are we generally reporting in research? The average result. Right. Even in Brad's paper, some of the higher volume groups got less growth than the lower volume groups and vice versa. If you actually look at Mike, the paper Mike Isertel was involved in. And the reason I keep describing it like that is I'm afraid I'm going to mispronounce Cody. I, for a while, I wrote it as Juan, H-U-A-N, and I think it's actually Han, H-A-U-N. And I it don't is, want to yeah. get it wrong. So I'm just going to keep saying it's the paper Mike is involved with is because they did that sub-analysis, right? The sarcoplasmic hypertrophy thing. And they took all the subjects, 30 or so, half the people lost size. Mm. If you actually look at the graph, because what they did for that sub-analysis is that, all right, we're going to take the, the group of people who grew above a certain point. But if you look at the, at the graph, the line, there's a few people that got small and then it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. When you have data like that, all it takes is one big outlier to pull the numbers up. Yeah. Suddenly one num one group. But anyway, so you've got we're we're comparing individuals with huge individual variants. Well, a couple studies have compared individuals to themselves. So they'll do like three sets for one arm and six for the other. Right. So they're their own control. Mm-hmm. And what they're finding is that yes, there are often differences in volume response. However, individuals who get the best response to high volumes also get the best response to low volumes. And that the variance within any given individual is much, much, much smaller than the variance between two individuals. Basically, if you're going to grow, you're going to grow. And if you're not going to grow, you should take up a different sport, right? right? And that's just, we've known this. And so we've got all these research studies comparing individuals to one another. And a lot of the results may turn out to not really be telling what the, the conclusions may not be what we want them to be, because what we really need to find out is, does a given individual respond better or worse to one or the other? Right. And what and again, basically, and, and even there's work showing who is a hyper responder and who is not uh, better mitochondrial function predicts better growth response probably because you have just better energetic status. One paper came out last year that the people who were able to synthesize more ribosomes, ribosomes basically take uh, synthesized proteins, they pull in amino acids and all that stuff. Everybody forgot from eighth grade biology. The people who had the greatest increase in ribosomes from training grew the best. Well, it's genetic. Until I find someone, until I come up with a ribosomal biogenesis training program, coming soon from McDonald Labs, uh, LLC, whatever, whatever, Um, right? Basically, if you're genetically blessed, you're genetically blessed, and if you're not, too bad. And so I think that's going to be a big change going forwards. Um, Yeah, I did have 
Cody on twice actually, Ooh. and um, you know Michael That's Roberts, awesome. and and they were pretty upfront about that about saying that there was a, a big variation in the results among individuals that the uh, the variation was much bigger as far as like you know looking at individuals versus like within the person. Um, basically, like you said, if yeah. you're gonna grow, you're gonna grow. And if you don't have the genetics for it, it's just kind of a bitch. <laughs> um, but they were they were upfront about really, it. It was like a tenfold difference. Like it wasn't small. Like the difference between right. in like within within a given individual and between individuals, it's like tenfold. So it it's really difference. we're not yeah. we're not really it's like not a joke in terms of like you know. And again, there's this whole thing about who's a responder, and there's a lot of early work on mostly on aerobic. Excuse me, aerobic stuff. That good God. That like in response to aerobic training, some people increase their VO2 max by roughly zero percent, and others increase their VO2 max by roughly forty yeah. percent. Like then they were like, there are non-responders, and someone's like, oh, the non-responders just need more volume. Right. And of course, that's now been sort of inferred to ah, if you're a hard gainer, you should do more volume rather than less, which. I don't think it's been studied on resistance training yet, but it's worth looking at, certainly. Yeah. But again, how do we know a priori, you know, before the study, who is going to be, who is and who isn't a hyper responder? I think other than look at that a little bit with, I have to, I don't remember. It's been a little while since I talked to Cody, but I, I feel like they did find that the people who didn't respond in the lowest volume group, when they did the higher volume, they had some response. Again, it was less. But it sure. was some response. I, I believe they did look at that. So yeah, so like, so I think that's really a, a you know, a, a pro is it's entirely possible that we're actually asking the wrong question, right? Yeah. I mean, rather than asking the question of what is the optimal volume in absolute terms, you know. But then again, you do like when you start to look at kind of these studies that used quality work, seems to me like a lot of this kind of falls out in the wash. Like if you look at the Barbalho studies that went super heavy to failure, like. Pretty much it was everybody in the low volume group grew better than everybody. And like there wasn't that kind of extreme overlap, because, right. you know, and who knows, maybe it's neurological efficiency. Maybe it's I mean, this is also an issue with going to failure. Most people don't stop lifting when they hit muscular failure. They stop when it gets hard. Mm -hmm. And there is an enormous difference in those two, because sure. for a while I got I got up my butt last year. And because um, honestly, and this will sound, you want to talk about, you know, a personal attack, but whatever. I'm not pretending to be a scientist. I don't give a damn. Um, if you want to understand why certain individuals in this evidence-based industry promote such high volumes, go watch the videos of them training and you'll understand exactly why they need these kind of volumes. They don't need, they only need these kind of volumes because when you watch their work, like there's one of a couple individuals doing their sets and then trying to determine, asking each other, so what, how many reps in reserve do you think that was? These right. people are, these people are publishing articles on a topic and they don't even know the answer. Okay. And I, as, so anyway, I shot a bunch of videos because I did, I spent all those years in the hard I game. I saw those, yeah, yes. Two sets, like you want to, I'll kill anybody in two sets squats. You won't get off four for 10 minutes. I have done two all-out sets of 15. I mean, to failure with a five-minute rest interval with the same weight on the bar. You won't get off the floor. You sure yeah. shit won't get off the floor in 90 seconds, right? I'm surprised you even got the same. You got 15 and then 15 again. With a five-minute rest. And, like, I'm built more for endurance, so I was a better yeah. endurance athlete than I was a lifter. But I did, you know, I did the John Christie, two all-out sets of five on five minutes. Like, I've done the, the worst set I ever did. I just like to talk about this because I, I wouldn't recommend it. My mentor, who was an evil, evil man. I only did this once because I actually met him in person once. So the 20-rep squat, right? You take presumably your 10 rep max and you rest pause it to 20 reps. So this was his version of it. First you did your set of 20 under his watchful eye and right. You get to 10, however, then you take, you know, by the end of it, you're just breathing like freight train. Then he assesses penalty repetitions. Any rep that he was not happy with, which could be too fast, not deep enough, not under control. You had to do again. Could be zero. I guess presumably it could be all of them. Then you do five. You try to get either five more repetitions or get stuck in the bottom. 
That's failure in the squat. Now, would I recommend most people do it? No, because they'll get hurt. Right? People will miss singles. I'm talking about, and if you go online, find, go look at the video of Jesse Marund, who unfortunately has passed away, squatting something stupid, 405 by 40 or something just ungodly. And he racks the bar and he right? Once, what, what I think is happening, a lot of people, because I put up these videos, right? And I'm like, look, this is what failure looks like. We're pushing until you get stuck in the middle, which is hard as you can. And sometimes you grind it out. Right. The, if the bar speed is not moving extremely slowly at the end, you're not anywhere close to failure. You think you are, but mm -hmm. you're just stopping because it's hard. Until you've done that, you don't have the first damn clue how many reps from failure you are. Period. Right. And if you go watch videos, a lot of the people espousing higher volumes, it's pretty obvious why. Because they're training. And then you look at like the crap. And what was it? Take the first set to full on concentric failure, except squats. And like RDL, certain movements are not built for it. Rest, do two or three more repetitions. Rest, two or three more rep, right? Typical rest pause. Mm -hmm. And again, if you look at it in that effective rep model, you get that set to failure, which is however many, four or five effective reps. By not getting full recovery and continuing that, that multi, that long set, get two or three more, two or three more, do that twice. Boom, there's your 25 effective reps per set, which might be sort of a, a funk. And if you start mathing it all out, that's about where all this stuff comes out. Now, is dog crap for everybody? No. Burns a lot of people out? Absolutely. Uh, blade. Barely. Thank you. <laughs> uh, you know, he's got his bio reps, very similar concept. You do your muscular activation set, and then you rest, pause your way to however many repetitions, right? We start to see these commonalities. So, yeah, there's both basically multiple paths to the goal. You can do, you know, six to eight sets that are just short of failure. You can do five to true limits two or three times per or twice a week or whatever it is. You can do, you know, 15 sets fooling around. You can do 32 sets a week that are all warm-ups, truly fooling around. Um, or you can do rest pause somewhere in the middle. It kind of, yes, it does get it, but I'm not generally seeing the high volume people qualifying it. They're saying high volume is superior in absolute terms. And then James comes out a year and a half later and says, there's actually no real difference in the results if you go eight sets right. And then he called the consilience. And what that meant was everybody agrees with what I said originally. And Eric. <laughs> At mass, Mike Isertel has revised his training volume. James has changed his tune. Consilience here means they all agree with me now, but none of them will come out and say I was right all along. Well, but that's a whole separate. That's a, that's a good mic drop to end on. I feel like whenever we talk, my mind, I think of so many other things we could talk about. I'm sure we could oh, go sure. for a very long time. Uh, and I'm sure this I will not be the last time that I have you on. Um, oh, no, but, absolutely. But where can people find more of your stuff? If you want to talk um, about as always, my website, bodyrecomposition.com, where I've been actually doing a lot more videos lately because I know people don't want to read endless, tedious <laughs> stuff. Actually, okay. I do both. I'll shoot the video, and then I'll write the article after the fact, which is usually close. Um, my Facebook and then my store is store.bodyrecomposition.com. Facebook group is called Body Recomposition. You can probably see a theme going. That's where I am most of the time. My Instagram is mainly dad jokes, uh, predominantly <laughs> every once in a while, but something I'm serious. But it's mainly being goofy. For example, today's status update, because I sang karaoke last night, which is my voice is, is destroyed, is apparently I was put on this world to sing Under the Sea from The Little Mermaid. I don't know what it is, but for some reason that is the song I am like the best at. I don't know. So that was my Instagram update today, just to give you a, an idea. Everybody expects me to put all kinds of fitness stuff, and it's usually just me telling stupid jokes. Um, Were that's you actually at that on your Instagram? No, I didn't. I'll video We're going to need that, <laughs> Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. I'll get it on video at some point. But and, and the reason I did it about three weeks ago, karaoke went Disney. Mm -hmm. And the only songs in the Carathon catalog, the karaoke catalog that I knew were the DuckTales theme, which I kind of knew. And then, I mean, the last Disney movie I saw was Little Mermaid, 1992, yeah. college. That's Oh my God, that's almost 20 years old. Yeah. And, uh, and I was like, ah, I can fake my way through this. And I just destroyed it. Anyway, so <laughs> that's at, at McDonald Lyle is my Instagram. 
my Facebook group is really where I'm most active. And I, as I like to always point out, I have a staggering number of really, 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 really smart people in my group. I've got four top-notch physios, including one, I believe he's a surgeon of some sort, uh, experts on eating disorders, uh, OBGYN for the stuff I can't cover. Um, you name it, there's somebody in my group that probably has expertise in it. And even the members, any question that gets asked, if I don't know what it is, somebody will be, those six people will be like, yeah, I've dealt with this. Yeah. And I have uh, one guy, a person I actually am trying to give more um, exposure because I think it's really important what he's doing. There's a guy in my group named Trevor Bunch, and he runs a page called The Fit Bunch. And he is a double lower body amputee. And I forget if he's above the knee or below the knee. And his website is dedicated. He, he basically got into strength and conditioning. It wasn't his original career. And he does a lot of – it's a lot of information on adapted exercise and things that – I believe it's predominantly lower body amputee. I don't, I don't swear me to that. Hmm. The things they need to do to stay healthy and be functional. Now, even though it's not something I'll probably ever use professionally, mm-hmm. it gives me a different way to think about things seeing and there are and there are people in my group also that have various uh physical uh, amputa- amputations there's one guy who's like a record holding deadlifter below the elbow amputation he uses a strap that's attached to the bar i'm like how do you pull 600 pounds with this thing strapped to your arm and he said in excruciating pain and i'm like damn yeah um, but anyway so trevor is this great page even if you're never going to use it, even if you're never going to work with adapted, uh, do adapted exercise, it will give you a different way to think about things, just a different perspective. Um, yeah. So I, I really try to kind of get his name out there, and it's called the Fit Bunch. So, so yeah, my Facebook group, like I said, I'm there all the time, uh, and that's where to find me. Awesome. Well, thanks again so much, Lyle, and everybody listening. Just as a reminder, we do have that Cotton Branch Farm Sanctuary link down below if you want to donate as well. So thanks to everybody for listening. Yeah, I love. I do just just randomly on that note. I love when people do that stuff. <clears throat> um, you know, set up the farms to be just like bring your animals; they can live here. It's awesome. So. Yeah, that's cool. All right, guys. 